The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co. established 1977 have personal and domestic water filters which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting alkaline ionized mineral water which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Dr. Will Cole is a leading functional medicine expert. He consults with people around the world via webcam and locally in Pittsburgh. He specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing health programs for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal dysfunctions, digestive disorders, and brain problems. Dr. Cole was named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation and is a health expert and course instructor for the world's largest wellness brands such as Mind Body Green and Goop. To find out more about Dr. Will, please visit his website, drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Dr. Will Cole, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, my brother? I am doing so good. I'm so excited to be talking with you. Me too. You've been on my radar for quite some time, and it's a privilege and an honor to be able to sit down and have a chat with you over the internet like we're doing at the moment. And congratulations on all the work that you're doing as well. You've got two books out at the moment if that's correct, The Inflammation Spectrum and Ketotarian. And I'd love to explore both of those works with you because we've never really had anyone on the podcast really dig down into the nitty gritty about inflammation and what that means. So I'd love for you to start right there and explain what is inflammation? How does it manifest in our bodies? What are the triggers for it? And let's go from there. Sure. Yeah. So inflammation is a product of our immune system. It is quite a nebulous term to the layperson. Like, what the heck is it? I, I know it's not good, but what is it? It's actually not inherently bad. It's needed for human existence. It is quite an important aspect of our immune system. It fights viruses and bacteria and human race would not be here without healthy balance inflammation levels. So just like anything in the body, it's, it's subject to the Goldilocks principle, not too high, not too low, but just right. And when inflammation specifically, it's just right when we need it. 
at the proper levels. So it's chronic inflammation is really the issue. It's when inflammation is thrown out of balance. It's sort of this forest fire that's burning in perpetuity. That's the issue. That common link of chronic inflammation, this is the commonality between just about every chronic health problem out there. When you look at things like heart disease and cancer and diabetes, autoimmune conditions to even mental health. I mean, in the West, we like to separate mental health from physical health, but mental health is physical health. And there's a whole field of research referred to as the cytokine model of cognitive function. It's basically cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. It's looking at how inflammation is impacting mental health, how our brain works. All of these different health issues are just so far reaching and separate on the surface, but underneath they have their roots are chronic inflammatory. So that is what the heart of my work has been. My day job is consulting patients online via webcam, dealing with these chronic health problems, a lot of autoimmune patient issues, a lot of chronic digestive problems, mental health issues. And you will invariably see these inflammatory components to all of these far-reaching health problems. So the inflammation spectrum, my second book, is really an, an exploration in ways to calm inflammation, attenuate it, and balance and bring back that Goldilocks principle back into the body. You talked about the root and had a few people talk about the root cause. And it's a really fascinating subject for me because I guess so many people would like to be able to put the root cause for their illness into one basket, whether it be nutrition, whether it be childhood trauma, whether it be the environment in which we live, whether it be some sort of way that we're living our lives where we're actually not moving our bodies or connecting to nature. Now, over your experience as as an integrative doctor and functional medical doctor, do you have a definitive answer on what is the root cause for illness? Can we put it into one basket? Or do we need to look at all these different pillars of health to identify which one may be out of balance or out of alignment or a combination of these? It's really a question that is really specific to the person. So I think that's where, as far as functional medicine is concerned, a good health history is invaluable because it really gives the upstream core story or narrative as to why, what brought someone to the place where they're at today if they're struggling with a health problem. But as a society, if you look at all the different factors and what what research is, is looking at is this growing mismatch between genetics and epigenetics, which I know it's the heart of your message and what you're putting out into the world, which is so brilliant because many people don't know about this stuff. And we have to start talking about it and educating people about it is that our genetics haven't changed largely. 99% of them haven't changed in 10,000 years, but yet our world has changed very dramatically in a very short period of time. So it's this parity between genetics and epigenetics, this growing mismatch between our DNA and the world around us. It's living in a brave new world in many ways. And that is what's awakening these genetic predispositions like never before. Again, they've been latent for 10,000 years, but why are they being triggered like never before? It's because of the onslaught of epigenetic factors. And I don't think it's one thing. And that's when an individual health history comes into play. There's going to be more factors. It'll be more food for one person. and It'll be toxins on the other person or it'll be more stress for the other person. And it's normally a 
a confluence, a perfect storm that will give rise to this chronic inflammation that's going on in somebody's life. So you have to decode that. You have to sort of untangle the different variables that give rise to somebody's you know, manifestation of that imbalance in their body. But I look at all those things because you have to keep an open mind and not be so myopic and say, well, it's just food. Well, we know food's an entry point. We know food, everybody's eating, hopefully. <laughs> They're all having their food throughout the day. That is a good starting point without a doubt because it's such a modulator of inflammation and every food we eat either feeds inflammation or fights it. There's no benign Switzerland meal. It's doing one thing or the other to our biochemistry and it's influencing inflammatory cascades. But we can't be so you know, myopic and say, well, it's just food because I see so many patients that are eating very brilliantly and clean foods, but they're still struggling with health problems. So you have to look at all these other components of toxins and chronic infections and stress and sleep and all of these other things that are constantly and dynamically influencing inflammation just as food is as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. I get a lot of comments on social media and I need to be very careful in how I answer because people will say, hey, Pete, I've adopted your eating program or profile or whatever, or philosophy, whether it be ketogenic or a paleo version of that. And I still suffer from disease. And I say, well, have you looked at the other aspects of this? You know, like you said, the toxins, the emotional side, how are you moving your body? How are you actually breathing? Or how, what is that internal dialogue for yourself, with yourself and with others that you co-inhabit this world with? Have you released these negative belief patterns that you might have inherited from your parents? And I find it fascinating that functional medical doctors or integrative medical doctors are at the forefront of this where you take a holistic look at all of those factors. And it's no mystery why you're probably the 30th integrative doctor that I've had on the network. Whereas I haven't interviewed what you would call a, a normal GP or a normal doctor. Now, why is it that functional medical practice or integrative doctors seem to still be in the very small percentage of medical professionals out there? And how quickly is it growing? And what are the results that you guys and women are getting as opposed to the current medical system? I think we are still the minority in healthcare because it's the training and the standard model of care. It's the training. Conventional doctors are trained to diagnose the disease and match it with a medication. That's the main driver of the educational model of mainstream conventional medical schools. That's the main reason. But it's growing by leaps and bounds. So we've had a virtual clinic, like I've been consulting patients online for the past 11 years, and it has changed so dramatically over the past decade plus, where it was seen as, you know, this sort of fringe field of healthcare a decade ago. Now the Cleveland Clinic in the, in the United States has a functional medicine center, it's sort of the gold standard in conventional medicine now has a functional medicine center. There are other uh, mainstream hospitals and medical centers throughout the United States and around the world that are now opening functional medicine centers. I mean, they are not doing that flippantly. They're not uh, opening up million-dollar functional medicine centers on a whim. They are seeing the evidence, and they realize that we need to do something different to see something different. So I think times are changing, albeit slower than I would like and what you would like as well. But it's we're growing in numbers and all you have to do is go to one of the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM, who is trained all the, the functional medicine doctors at the Cleveland Clinic, who trained myself and my team, and you see a sea 
I've conventionally trained doctors that are then going to IFM and institutions like it to be educated on this because they are having an awakening on an individual level because they're seeing the failure of the standard model of care when it comes to chronic health problems. And let me be very clear. I mean, we have to differentiate chronic care in the West from crisis care. We have one of the best crisis care systems around the world as far as the United States is concerned, as far as emergency care. If someone, God forbid, gets in a car accident or needs an emergency surgery, there's a place for modern medicine and functional medicine. We are not anti-conventional medicine, but when you look at chronic healthcare, when you're dealing with things like autoimmune conditions or diabetes or these other chronic health problems, that is where the problem lies. We're spending as a nation, in the the US at least, and I'm sure around the West, it's similar numbers. We're spending all this money on healthcare, yet we have very little to show for it. In the United States specifically, we have one of the shortest lifespans of all industrialized nations. We have really high chronic disease rates, yet we spend more than the next 10 top spending countries combined. All the money being spent is not bringing about good statistics as far as chronic health care is combined. So that is, I believe, why all these doctors are really having this come to Jesus moment, so to speak, of saying, look, I'm going to educate myself in functional medicine because I wasn't taught it in school, but I want to teach my patients ways to overcome these health problems that it's, you know, a growing prescription list and say, see you in six months, and the only thing that's changing is the growing prescription list and chronic health problems. It's not cutting it as a nation. It's bankrupting us, but it's also leading to shorter lifespans and more diseases. I want to go back to your book, The Inflammation Spectrum, about the foods that, as you said before, uh, can fuel the inflammation or fight against it but in a positive way. Because So many people are very confused about what foods they should be eating. I have a pretty simplistic view of this, and it's basically well-sourced animals from land and sea and, I guess, poison-free land-based fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds that haven't been sprayed with anything toxic that can affect our immune system. So... I sit on the right bang in the middle, not in the vegan camp, not in the carnivore camp, but in the omnivore camp. And that seems to work for a lot of people. But in that in itself, there's certain foods that can be a trigger for some people, whether it be nightshades, it could be garlic, it could be oxalates, these types of things. So can you talk us through how these different foods can affect say, myself, whereas the person living next door to me, they might be able to eat all the tomatoes in the world. But if I ate a tomato, for instance, it could send my body into an inflammatory state. Yeah, great point. So that's really the heart of the inflammation spectrum. My second book is just bio-individuality. It's really the heart of functional medicine too, is that even healthy things, even real foods, even whole foods, what works for one person may not work for the next person. And if I hung my hat on one exact formula of a whole foods diet, I'd be proven wrong all day long consulting patients because there's so many variables to consider. So a a whole food template, like you said, a, a paleolithic template is a good starting point. But under that umbrella of whole foods, a paleo type diet. What do the macros look like? What are the food medicines within that paradigm? What should you focus on? Because there's so much variability. And when you talk about food sensitivities or what's going on in the gut or genetic variants that really determine what food someone should focus on. So the inflammation spectrum book is really not a specific food 
dogma. It's not saying you know, one way or the other. I really want the reader to explore what their body loves, what their body hates, and finding food peace, whether someone prefers to eat more plant-based or more carnivorous or more of a paleo diet, more of a they eat whatever they want. I want them to really find out what's the best way to do the way that they love to eat. This is really fascinating because it's something that I see on an almost hourly basis. These things that work great for me or work great for the patient right before them, but it's causing a flare up in them. And I think largely this has to do with intestinal permeability and the rising amount of what we call leaky gut syndrome or this larger autoimmune inflammation spectrum issues. These people that don't have overt autoimmune conditions, even though they are part of this group as well. But it's people somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum that I talk about in the book, where there's three main sections. There's silent autoimmunity, meaning if you ran labs, you would probably see some positive antibodies, maybe some abnormal autoimmune markers, but they're feeling fine. And then stage two is autoimmune reactivity, meaning they don't feel good. There's positive autoimmune markers, but they're not bad enough to be a full-blown stage three, which is the autoimmune disease. But the criteria for diagnosis for those autoimmune diseases are really end-stage problems, meaning you have to have significant destruction of certain parts of your body before mainstream medicine calls it what it is. So for example, autoimmune adrenal disease, you have to have 90% destruction of your adrenal glands before it's labeled as Addison's disease and 70 to 80% destruction of different parts in your body with things like MS and things like celiac disease, it's on average four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis is when things start brewing on that autoimmune inflammation spectrum storm. So that is uh, most of my patients, sadly. Um, so I see this variability amongst the foods because of intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome. Anything is fair game when it comes to food reactivities or this sort of something called molecular mimicry. It's sort of the case of mistaken identity when things like dairy protein can pass through the gut a barrier and create this inflammatory cascade to dairy. Dairy works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. Or a lot of plant proteins like the lectins and the phytates, they work for some people and then cause reactivities in other people. You mentioned oxalates, same thing. There's so many things to consider. So yes, there are food sensitivity tests out there, but they are not as helpful, I think, for a lot of these nuanced things. When you see all these foods come back positive on these food reactivity labs, it's less to do with the foods and more to do with the intestinal permeability that's causing the overreaction. So what I advocate in the book and for my patients to, is to work on healing their gut and doing a properly formulated elimination diet approach where we are taking these foods that are more commonly reactive in people for a while, calming things down and then slowly reintroducing them and going off of them for a while for some people while we start to downregulate this inflammation, start improving immune uh, fortitude and balance so they can start having this resilience again because people are really lacking in this immune resilience and their, their body is so volatile and so reactive to so many things. It's like people are having reactions to salads and bloating from salads and inflammation from plant foods. Well, why? It's because the immune system is so overreactive that we need to start emptying the cup, so to speak, because it's overflowing and reacting so much. So in the book, we talk about epigenetic factors and all these variables of cross-reactivity or food reactivities or food sensitivities and different gut problems like SIBO and histamine intolerance that can cause these different reactions. But then 
there's the genetic component too. People that have these methylation impairments, people that have the endocannabinoid gene variants, like the people are hearing about CBD oil. Well, the CBD works on the endocannabinoid system, the ECS system in the body, which does a lot of things in the body. One of them is regulates inflammation. And research is pointing to the fact that the gut is rich with these CB1 receptors, these cannabinoid receptors. And people with these specific gene variants are more likely to have these inflammatory problems, more likely to have these lectin sensitivities, these food sensitivities. So we have to look at genetics. We have to look at epigenetics because some people are more inclined to have these food reactivities over other people. So I keep an open mind. I look at all the different components that make you, you and me, me and what brought somebody to this point so we can start to untangle this, start to heal, start to manage what we can manage to start emptying that cup, so to speak. And we all have different glass sizes. Some people have big glasses, some people have small glasses or mugs or whatever analogy that we're using here. That mug size is our genetic tolerance to stressors. And what we put in it is all the epigenetic stuff. And some people have a lot of resilience and they can do tons of stuff and they're, they're going to be fine. But a lot of times these people with autoimmune predispositions or somewhere on this autoimmune spectrum, they have very small mugs and they're going to overflow pretty quickly. Well, we can't change our genetics, but we can change what we put in the mug, so to speak. And that's what my job is. Just as a basic sort of foundational principle, when you're talking about the elimination diet, what do you rule out first and foremost and say, let's start with this? Well, the simple approach, and I start the book out with a quiz to really allow the reader to find out where they're at on the inflammation spectrum from mild symptoms on one end, you know, mild fatigue, background anxiety, maybe some bloating, maybe some joint aching on one end of the inflammation spectrum, all the way to the other end, which is the, you know, full blown autoimmune condition or mental health issue or weight loss resistance, whatever the case may be. And then everything in between. So the questions in the quiz are adapted from questions that I ask patients online. So I wanted the reader to really have agency over their health, understand their health in a deeper way, because a lot of times people just settle for feeling lousy because they think that's normal. And what I really want is to illuminate the reader and say, whoa, I just, I go through that every day. I thought that was normal. It's not normal. And then they can start really empowering themselves with things to do to overcome that thing they were just struggling just to get through the day and settling for thinking it was just them getting older or just them. And a lot of these problems are actually quite the opposite. These are things you can overcome and improve as far as digestion and energy levels or these other chronic inflammatory problems. So depending on where they're at on the inflammation spectrum, I made a simpler intervention as far as food is concerned and then a more advanced protocol. So the more simple protocol is just cleaning up foods that research shows to be the most commonly inflammatory. So those are things like added sugar, grains, which turn into sugar, plus the, the grain proteins are problematic, things like gluten and other lectins, high omega-6 oils, canola oil, vegetable oil, things like that, and dairy. And then we have the conversations about the different types of dairy, A1, A2, goat versus cow, and same with grains and all the other foods. There's so much nuance that I'm not making blanket statements here, but I want to say, okay, let's calm things down. Research shows these things tend to create inflammation and create uh, intestinal permeability, which will drive systemic inflammation in the body. And we all know we have different tolerances for these things. Some people can have certain various forms, some people can't. So this is about finding out what your body loves, back to that concept of bio-individuality of what works for your body and what doesn't. 
And then people that scored higher on the quiz, they're going through more things. They're going through more symptoms. I have a more advanced track, and that's the eliminate track, which is the core four foods that I just mentioned, plus four more. And that adds in nightshades, like you mentioned, that plant group that consists of tomatoes and eggplants and peppers, goji berries, white potatoes. Uh, then we add in nuts and seeds. We're going off of that for a while. Legumes, beans and eggs. So those are all whole foods. There's nothing inherently wrong. Like you said, I do fine with tomato ketchup. I do fine with nuts and seeds, but I know some of my patients don't. I know some of my colleagues don't. It's about bio-individuality and we're going off of these for a while, then reintroducing them. And that's sort of the two main tracks based on someone's inflammation spectrum quiz score. They can find out what their body loves and doesn't love. And then we talk about all the non-food inflamers too, which is definitely the different component of the book is that we're not just talking about food. We're talking about toxins and stress and social media addiction and social isolation. These things that are also driving inflammation levels up because it's not just about food. We're also working on eliminating. And then as the book progresses, we're talking about things like oxalates and histamines and salicylates and these other things that some people have to dive into the weeds and get a little bit even more specific based on their specific issues. But I start off simple, and then we lean into the more detailed stuff for the people that need that. When somebody has an autoimmune disease and people that I've interviewed before talk about, say, gluten and dairy being quite problematic. So your goal, from my understanding and from other functional medical doctors, is to heal the gut or get it into a position of non-permeability so things don't pass through that shouldn't be passing through. Once that occurs, how long does that take? Is it a six-month protocol? Is it a year protocol? Is it a couple of years? Is it, a, is it a week? How long does this take to heal the gut? How do people know when it is healed? And then say something like gluten or dairy for these people that was very problematic. Can they reintroduce that or do you recommend that it just stays out of their diet for good? So there's studies to show, I point to a few of them in the book that the microbiome is going to start changing pretty quickly with dietary changes. I mean, you can measure improvements in the gastrointestinal system, in the microbiome over a course of weeks. But that's not meaning that the person's health is completely reversed or optimized. So while you could see improvement, which is good, and those labs that we're measuring our reflection of why somebody feels the way that they do, people can start feeling better pretty quickly within weeks. But the long-term trajectory, especially for people that are higher, that are more progressed on the inflammation spectrum, there's evidence to point that it's going to take a year and a half to two years for most people that are dealing with autoimmune issues and other things that uh, are linked to these uh, chronic leaky gut syndrome problems where there is a triggered genetic predisposition or this inflammatory cascade, this autoimmune component that's going on, it's going to take longer for someone to really downregulate an out-of-control immune system where there's a lack of T-regulatory cells, which is basically the immune balancing mechanism in the body that's lacking in a lot of these people that have these runaway inflammatory problems. So that's what I've seen. I've seen studies that point to that. That's actually right around that same marker that I find clinically too is about a year and a half, two years where most people get to their place of they're close to optimal function or they're at optimal function for most people, like somewhere between a 70%, like someone saying, hey, I'm about 70% better than I used to be to 100% better than I used to be, somewhere in that upper bracket of improvement. And that's also colleagues and mutual friends of ours like Terry Walls. She 
noticed the same thing in her life. Vic Paldi, I don't know if you know her, but paleo boss lady, she noticed the same thing around in her life as well. So a lot of us in the autoimmune space kind of noticed that diligently working on our health, somewhere around the two-year mark for most adults, they see the place of more resilience than they saw in the two years prior. More studies need to be done. Everybody's different, but that's typically what we're seeing. So a couple of years ago, I had the great pleasure of having Professor Alessio Fasano over in, in, at our house with David Perlmutter for dinner. And he's the famous gastroenterologist. And obviously, Perlmutter is a neurologist. And Alessio was saying that potentially by having a bite of gluten, you know, a mouthful of gluten, it can affect the system for up to six months, possibly even a year. So from my understanding, what we're trying to do is rebuild the integrity of our gut lining through the elimination protocol that you're talking about. But if we go back and eat one of these foods that causes that wall to break down, it's like starting all over again. Is that the case? Because I see a lot of people that adopt this sort of diet, but then they're still drinking a beer every week and they're wondering why shit isn't happening for them or they're not moving forward in their health thing. And it's like every time you have that beer, that wall is just crumbling and then you're eating all the good food to build it up again. Then you have another beer or it could be a, a sandwich or a sausage roll or whatever it may be. And you're knocking that wall down again. Am I being too simplistic in this or is, is that the case for some people? That's definitely the case for some people. And actually, that study, Alessio Fasana, is the study that he was referencing that it's his work. I reference that in the Inflammation Spectrum book because that is what I see too. You see these long-standing antibodies, these long-standing immune flares from people that have one exposure, not even a big exposure to one of these foods gluten being one of them that are causing a flare. Again, it's a spectrum. Not everybody's having these extreme responses. Some people are having these low-grade responses, but it's the low-grade problems that are impacting people's lives too. It's less noticeable, like the distance between cause and effect, it's less obvious for them. But when I stick a step back and really look at the labs and the health history and the mechanisms that are at play, I can see that's, that inflammatory cascade is, is playing out for them as well. They're just not seeing it as directly as like the overt autoimmune MS flare or celiac flare or Crohn's or ulcerative colitis flare, which we see too. But it's more obvious for them oftentimes. But it's this inflammation spectrum. Anybody, no matter where you're at in the inflammation spectrum, these laws apply to them. This is definitely the case. I've heard it said once when it comes to things like gluten or things like that are going to cause reactions in people, being like mostly gluten-free is like saying you're mostly pregnant. It's not a thing. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. I see people holding on to these little things and they think, well, it's still under that paradigm of dieting. And they think, well, that's really the name of the game. It's really not when it comes to an immune response. You need to give your body a full break from these things that it's overreacting to, to see the changes that you're wanting to see. I had a guest on recently, uh, Dr. Thomas Cohen, and this is a very controversial topic, but he believes that vaccines can be an instigator or a catalyst for a lot of these autoimmune diseases that are happening, as well as other people that I've spoken to say that 
antibiotic use could be a trigger for gut permeability. Other people say EMF exposure can be a trigger for certain gut permeability as well, as well as the glyphosate that we're spraying on the foods. That can also be a low-level antibiotic that we're putting into our body and a poison that seems to break down our gut lining. In your experience and your perception, what do you think is the trigger for this rise of autoimmunity and disease that's out there? Because it seems to be escalating exponentially to the point where like an everybody, not everybody, but there's a lot of people that are having this. And a very controversial thing that I've never brought up before, but from some of the reading that I've done, if you are a parent and you're going to reproduce and you have an autoimmune disease, chances are that your child will have a compromised gut flora or gut permeability already just from the parent that has the autoimmune disease. So that child is already on the back foot when it comes into this life. So, I mean, these are very controversial things that I'm saying here. They're things I've read and things that I've heard, and you seem to be a very level-headed person. So I would love to get your take on all of this. Obviously, I think a lot of this, there's emerging science and there's needs to be more studies done, more unbiased, well-formulated studies to really understand the nuances of all of this. And I think anecdotally, you'd have to have your head in the sand to not look around and say that something's going on here. I mean, this is impacting autoimmune conditions at large are, are growing by leaps and bounds. And better diagnostics is a part of that, like we understand it more, but that does not explain the full breadth of what's going on here. Nobody out there would say we're only seeing a rise of autoimmune conditions because of better diagnostics. Not even the most one end of you know the research world would even say that. We know these things are growing. Why is the question. So the best analogy that I have is that glass analogy. I think a lot of these people have these gene variants that make them have these smaller mugs, so to speak, and they're overflowing pretty quickly. So I don't think it's just one thing. There could be something that can be the tipping point. That could be the straw that broke the camel's back for sure, but it's not just one thing. So we have to look at food supply. We have to look at the mineral depletion of our soil and the toxins and the things that are sprayed on our food. We have to look at the amount of certain foods that people are having that our genetics are not adapted to over Again, I haven't changed in 10,000 years, but yet the modern Western diet has changed very dramatically over a very short period of time. We have to look at all the things that we are putting on our body, like skin products that are largely unregulated, that our body largely absorbs. People have to remember that our skin's our largest organ and these things are really unregulated. And at least in the United States, things that are not legal in other states, people are using them on a daily basis as far as beauty products are concerned, as far as cleaning products are concerned. And then in the United States, you look at things like Flint, Michigan with the water supply, with the toxicity that's going on there. That's not just a Flint, Michigan problem. This is happening around the world as far as contamination. So I think it's really, a, again, a confluence of factors. I don't think it's one thing. We talk to certain people and they know, hey, it's, it was this one thing for me. Well, that probably was the tipping point. That was something that triggered that genetic predisposition, but it probably wasn't the only thing. It didn't happen in a vacuum. It probably was a combination of things that brought about 
of that tipping point. So it's not one thing. It's a lot of different things, but we need to keep an open mind and say, okay, look at all these variables, really what's going on. And we can't live in a bubble. We can't just be avoidant of everything. We have to do the best we can with the access we have, with the budget we have to start to emptying that mug, so to speak, to not have it overflowing anymore. Let's talk about ketotarian for a minute. I've been following a, a ketogenic diet slash paleo for the last eight years, and so have my children, and so has all, all of my family, including my mum, my wife. And it's been amazing. It's all I can say is it's amazing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm 46 years of age now, and I've, I'm having the best time of my life doing activities that uh, I never thought I'd be able to do from 10 years ago with the same vitality and, and mental clarity that, that, I, that I possess now and, and I'm empowered by that. I would love for you to talk about ketotarian because you mentioned that vegans can come along and do this principle, vegetarian, plant-based, uh, people that are more carnivorous. So how, what is your definition of ketogenic diet and why did you come up with this book called Ketotarian that allows everybody to put their toe or, or foot, get fully submerged into this way of life? And why does it work so well for so many people? Yeah, thank you so much. So Ketotarian was really born out of my own personal health experience and then consulting patients online and seeing, I think, the, the amazing benefits of the ketogenic diet as well as the, the potential pitfalls of it. And it really is an amalgamation between the best of being plant-based and the best of being keto adapted. But in short, for people that don't know, the ketogenic diet, uh, it's uh, ketogenic, it's burning fat for fuel, and it's getting the body in the state of nutritional ketosis, which is a natural state that our body has, that humans would have been in times of ketosis for the majority of human history. Um, and again, from an ancestral health perspective, which is kind of where I come from, uh, it is getting our body in more in alignment with what our genetics are adapted to as much as we can. And I think that ketosis is something that I use for my patients, for myself, to gain metabolic flexibility. So body people are always in this sugar burning mode. Uh, they're burning, you know, they're having sugar for, for food. They're having things that break down into sugar, like carbs and grains and things like that. Uh, and that's sort of like kindling on the fire. And you get kindling, you keep putting more kindling on the fire to maintain that flame throughout the day. Or you're going to get hangry and irritable and be on a blood sugar roller coaster. You have to maintain that, that kindling flame. The alternative from a metabolic standpoint is burning fat for fuel. Uh, and that's what the ketogenic diet is. It's like a log on the fire. It's more slow burning. It'll be sustainable and it'll put you through the day uh, more sustainably. So that's what ketosis is. And what the way that I advocate for ketosis in ketotarian is to use ketosis as a form to gain metabolic flexibility, to burn fat for fuel, to get the log on the fire. But then when you want kindling, for your day, you can have that as well from clean, healthy sources. So I, I don't think that everybody has to be in ketosis all day, every day. I myself do more of a cyclical ketotarian approach where I've gained metabolic flexibility. And the way that I advocate it for in ketotarian is go to go eight weeks at least, mostly plant-based keto, a clean ketogenic diet, get, get that metabolic flexibility, get the benefits of ketosis, the fat burning, the anti-inflammatory benefits, the brain cognitive improvements, the 
all of these great things that research is pointing. But then from there, you can find your bio-individuality, just like I mentioned with the inflammation spectrum, what works for your body. So I like a cyclical ketogenic approach. Some people do better staying in ketosis. Some people do better doing it around their ovulation, around their period for women out there. And some people do it seasonally from an ancestral health perspective, a seasonal ketotarian approach, ketogenic approach could work well for people too. During the summer, having more fresh fruits and tubers and things like that. And during the winter months, they'd be in more ketosis. So there's so many ways to use this amazing tool of ketosis, but you have to gain metabolic flexibility first. And most people don't have, they're very metabolically inflexible. They're metabolically rigid, only in sugar burning mode. So you have to gain the flexibility first, and from there you can find your, your sweet spot of how to use this amazing tool of ketosis. So what Ketotarian is, is vegan keto, vegetarian keto, and pescatarian keto, wild-caught fish, fresh seafood. So I really wanted, I wrote it for three different reasons. One is to show the plant-based world, look, this is a way more sustainable, sound way to be more plant-based because you're getting metabolic flexibility, you're tapping into the wondrous benefits of ketosis, you're doing a plant-based diet in a clean way. And I also wrote it for the ketogenic community, which largely can uh, turn into sort of this obsessive, like high ketones at all costs, and they're afraid of become afraid of vegetables or anything mm. that could even even in theory, decrease their ketones. And I have this con conversation about fiber and not being fearful of fiber for most people and net carbs and this conversation of that. Uh, and I wanted to give them some more fresh food and not just bacon and butter all day to like, here's a way to do the ketogenic diet in a clean way, in my opinion. And then I wrote it for the disillusioned layperson that's like, well, how the heck do I do this? And I wanted their, their entry point to come from a clean way. So all of Ketotarian's recipes, there's like over 80 recipes in the book. They're all paleo. They're all um, whole foods based, um, but they are uh, really, in my opinion, uh, a clean way to do this, this diet. Mm, I love it. I mean, that's how we live is a, a cyclical and it can be seasonal. Like right now it's summertime here in Australia. And if you come into our kitchen, we have bowls of fruit, beautiful tropical organic fruit, just <laughs> lay it on the bench. And, <laughs> love it. But if you came to our house in winter, there'd be hardly any fruit in there. You know, we might have some apples or something like that, something very, very basic that's that's growing locally at that time. But now because it's so warm, yeah, I love that sugar uh, that comes from this beautiful ripe fruit that uh, it grows in this area. And in wintertime, I seem to really love those, the broths, the stews, the curries, the braised meats. Whereas now in summer, it's more the seafood. It's a little quick, quick sear on the steak. It's very quick type of food instead of the slow food. And cyclical, I've spoken about, I've written a couple of books with Dr. McCullough and we talk about these different ways of breaking in and out of ketosis, as you said, either seasonally, maybe some people do it weekly, some people do it monthly. And and I agree with you, you've got, to, you've got to get your body into that ketone burning state for that first four to eight weeks or whatever it may be for that person to set that up and then you can have that flexibility. But you just mentioned something then about women with their periods and I'd love to explore that because I've never heard that about eating more carbs around that time. So can you explain that? Mm -hmm, sure. So 
And it's too oversimplistic for me to say all women should be doing this uh, because we know it's you can't it's that's way too oversimplistic. So there are women that do really well with longer term ketosis, and these rules will not apply to them. Uh, women that are more insulin resistant, women that have other inflammatory problems, they feel wondrous when they're in ketosis and they don't feel as good when they go out of it. So that's, I'm not talking about them, but I'm talking about women that tend to be leaner. They uh, tend to, you know, not have much uh, fat on their bodies uh, and they've been doing ketosis for a longer period of time. And then they find that they are kind of past the honeymoon period with the ketogenic diet and they weren't, they're not seeing the same benefits they saw originally. They're maybe stuck at a plateau. And I find that uh, a cyclical ketogenic approach around their cycle tends to maintain a metabolic flexibility. Because what can happen, there's a few things that can happen, is that you can see slightly lower thyroid sluggish numbers uh, because a lot of these mechanisms are glucose dependent. And we know through gluconeogenesis, the body starts producing uh, this glucose in the ketogenic diet. But some women are coming into the game. They already are dealing with slightly sluggish thyroid numbers. Uh, and when their gluconeogenesis is basically not giving them the enough conversion of T4 to T3 that their body needs, and they're fine in the short term. They feel great with a ketogenic diet. They do, they do good, or maybe they don't feel so good. They don't see all the benefits that people promised. And then we can start to measure these, thing, these things on labs where their thyroid numbers are actually going lower and lower and lower. And look, there's people in the longevity space, the biohacker, like longevity space, lower thyroid numbers can be good from a longevity standpoint. But there are some people that are not doing well with these lower thyroid numbers. And then you have to look at progesterone and estrogen as well. And you have to look at leptin. So basically all the hormones. And what I have found is that people that do the ketogenic diet for longer term, and that could be months, it could be years for some people, they are they've lost the metabolic flexibility on the other side, meaning that they, they're not burning carbs at all because they've been low carb for so long that they need to do more of a cyclical approach and they don't necessarily need to do it every week, which is the way that I do it. They just sometimes need the extra boost around their cycle, around ovulation, around uh, their period, that's giving their body more of the carbohydrates they need to balance out progesterone or give the leptin a good modulation or help the thyroid conversion during that time of the month where they're feeling more irritable or more fatigued or more stressed out. So that's a, a, a simple uh, tweak and modification. And they may not even go out of ketosis entirely because I, I, I'm not even talking about super high carb loading. This could be anywhere between 50 grams to 150 grams of carbohydrates coming from things like fruits and sweet potatoes and very clean foods, but they may have trace amount of ketones or maybe they go out of ketosis, but it's giving the body that extra kindling on the fire when they kind of need that. And it gives their hormones a little, a little, a little bit of a boost during that time and supports that healthy hormone balance. Not every woman needs to do that, but that is definitely a tool that we implement uh, for some people. And you're still talking about an anti-inflammatory diet, so it's not go down and get a Pizza Hut pizza and, and do that on that <laughs> no, day. definitely. <laughs> Never would advocate that, yeah. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals.
I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast podcast.